Welcome to Callings, a podcast of NetView, the network for vocation in undergraduate education, featuring conversations on college, career, and a life well lived. I'm Hannah Schell, online community coordinator for NetView and co-host of this podcast. In this special episode of Callings, I had the opportunity to interview my co-host, Erin Van Lanningham, about her recent book project on vocation and literary studies. As with each episode, we invite you to explore the process of discovering vocation, and we approach the subject with eagerness as well as humility and the recognition that a diversity of viewpoints, both religious as well as secular, influence how we understand vocation. Through these conversations, we hope to offer listeners better ways to understand how discerning one's purpose in connection with others is central to a meaningful life. My guests today are Stephanie Johnson and Aaron Van Lanningham, co-editors of the new book, Cultivating Vocation in Literary Studies. Stephanie Johnson is Associate Professor and Chair of English, as well as Director of the Honors Program at the College of St. Scholastica. She has published essays in Victorian Literature and Culture and Literature and Theology. Aaron Van Lanningham is Professor of English at Loris College and director of NetView's Scholarly Resources Project. She has published essays in women's writing and early theater. Now, regular listeners will recognize Erin as the co-host of this podcast, but for today, the tables are turned as I get to ask her the questions. Both Stephanie and Erin were part of the first Teaching Vocational Exploration Seminar hosted by NetView in 2017, and both have contributed to NetView's blog, Vocation Matters which is to say they both have been in this arena of teaching and mentoring undergraduates about vocational discernment for several years, and I'm excited to talk with them today about the book, about the scholarship of vocation, and about their own trajectories of calling. Stephanie and Aaron, thank you for being here. Thanks for having us, Hannah. (laughs) Thank you. This is wonderful. So, as we always do, we're going to begin with your stories of vocation um, and Stephanie, we'll, we'll start with you. Tell us something about your own vocational journey. Was there a particular moment of epiphany? Was there a significant crossroads? Maybe even a setback that was clarifying? Tell us a couple of stories. Great. Um, I'd like to begin with just thinking about a couple of moments uh, along my vocational path. The first one is a moment in college Um, You know, when I was younger, when I was 14 or 15, and I was thinking about what I might do with my life and what I might do well and what I might offer and what what I loved to do, you know, I was a really quiet kid. I was so quiet. Um, I was a quiet high school student. And it seemed that my love of books and my love of writing sort of was leading me naturally into working in a library or somewhere, you know, (laughs) where I really didn't have to... um, engage with people that much uh, in large groups, but could sort of engage one-on-one. When I was in college, though, I remember a distinct moment in an English class. um, And I probably hadn't said anything in that class all semester. But we were reading Huckleberry Finn. And I, of course, had read the introduction to the edition (laughs) as well as the novel. (laughs) And when the professor asked a question about the ending... It was probably the first time I said something, but I remember distinctly 
uh, raising my hand and offering some commentary on the ending of that novel that was informed by the introduction, by the scholarly introduction. Um, you know, that the ending of that novel is contested and um, there's a, a critical argument about, um, you know, Tom's sort of entry into the novel and all the crazy stuff that happens and um, questions of racism and um, and if that ending is really necessary, if it fits. And so I offered my perspective informed by that introduction and the validation that I received from that professor that day was transformative for me. Um, and I am so grateful to her for acknowledging my contribution and affirming what I could do and coming back to that moment. I also remember my classmates really had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> so it really, when I say it was transformative, it positioned me with that professor in a way in that classroom, in conversation and in conversation with other scholars. Right? Mm. Um, so I, it was transformative in that I could suddenly see myself as a potential scholar and a potential professor. And that was the first time that ever occurred to me as a, as a really quiet individual. Um, so that was the start of, of my thinking in a different way about what I could contribute. Um, the second moment happened in my master's program. Um, I was part of a, a, a group um, of students, of graduate students, taking a, a course together, a workshop, a practicum. And we were co-teaching an undergraduate course, which, by the way, is a really bad idea. Um, but we we were assigned to do that, this, this class of students, um, to teach together this undergraduate class. And I had kind of a, a kind of a crisis, I would call it, in the middle of that semester, where I was in the position of having to be in front of people regularly to be leading students who were about a year younger than I was. Um, and uh, and I had to decide that I would, in a way, rethink who I am and how I am. And it was, again, a second moment of transformation where I chose um, this profession that's, that puts me in front of people all of the time and demands, you know, that I contribute in different fora and that I speak um, um, publicly and, you know, um, in small groups and just different settings um, with and, and, and having to speak sort of, you know, um, as to speak from my position of knowledge and to recognize a kind of power dynamic as I'm doing that. So it was a choice. And, and I, I think why I highlight it now is that I, I made a choice that was both affirmed by others, by my professors, um, but also that came from a love that I have for my field and discipline, but then also a choice to kind of transform who I am and, and how I am in the world. Mm. Um, so those those are really the I think the two primary moments that I think of um, when I'm asked about my vocational journey. Um, they really set me on this path. I love hearing those two moments, Stephanie. They're um, like like you. I uh, returned to my college years when I was thinking about this and to a really particular classroom at Luther College, and I had a January term class, um, Africana women's writing taught by Martin Klammer. And I read a book called Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. And that book um, shifted the way that I thought about everything. Um, and uh, it opened up conversations that um, I wanted to be a part of about identity and about, you know, journey and independence and 
it ended up that the following January term, I, I went with a group of students and that same professor to the Zora Neale Hurston Conference and Festival of the Arts and Humanities in Eatonville, Florida. And I attended my first academic conference. And when I was there, listening to scholarly papers and asking questions, um, my professor turned to me and said, you seem really comfortable in this environment. Um, maybe you should think about, uh, think about this as a path. And I had never considered it. Um, and I would say that was my first, what I will call, moment of listening to a vocational call where I, I kind of started to pay attention to um, the words that other people offered me. And so then as in my senior year, as many students do, they uh, take a senior seminar. And again, I was with a, a really um, influential professor. Um, Mary Hall Moore was her name. And uh, the, the uh, seminar was on Shakespeare and gender. And I was writing this big research paper and, you know, embroiled in um, footnotes and various arguments. And she said to me, have you ever thought about teaching and uh, and scholarship? Because it seems like you're comfortable in that. Um, and so, th again, these two separate voices, but these moments of listening. Um, and I, I thought about it for a little while. I, I, you know, I just wasn't sure I wanted to do graduate school in English, and I did not want to be a teacher. I had parents who were teachers great teachers, but I was really trying to resist a family narrative, I think. Um, but then I ended up in a master's program and um, in, a, in a classroom uh, of my own, not, not team taught. Um, but I, uh, I ended up in a classroom and maybe the second day of walking into that classroom, I sort of listened to myself at that moment and said, yeah, I think this is what I, what I need to be doing. Um, so there were these moments of listening to other people and then sort of listening to myself that I would say um, kind of affirmed a path um, that I hadn't really even considered for myself um, as, as something to set out on. You know, hearing people tell stories like that just it gives an invitation to all of us of the teachers or maybe if it wasn't a teacher that first saw something and fortunately, you know, said you should consider this. Um, I think that's not always, but often the case of how kind of a vocation begins. So, And Stephanie, I heard in what you said, there's also an aspect of that you assent to it. You make a conscious choice. Yes, you know, I'm going to listen to this, I'm paying attention, and I'm going to do it. Um, so, so let's get into this just wonderful, wonderful book. Um, you talk a little bit about how it came to be in the introduction. I take it it sort of spun out of conversations from that NetView seminar in 2017. But talk to us a little bit about just, you know, the initial idea, the process. Um, and I, I get hints in, in the parts that I have read and in the conversations I've had with both of you that there was a kind of an agitation that prompted this book. And so I just want to uh, ask you to share uh, what that original agitation was that prompted this whole project. That NetView seminar together in 2017 was really formative. And, you know, we were encouraged to, to think about our discipline at that seminar and to, to speak with the other literary scholars present. And we did. And it was really a year later that that came to fruition. Uh, we met together again in 2018 for a reunion for many of us. And 
at that reunion, um, with, you know, the support of NetView, we started talking together about the possibility of creating a project together, working on a collection of essays that would really foreground what we do in literary studies, that what we can provide to the conversation around teaching vocation, um, what's different about our discipline in that conversation, um, really to to highlight our strengths and what we do in our discipline, and in our hope, I guess, then to transform the conversation about vocation at the same time. And so I don't know if it began in agitation, but it may have developed the agitation <laughs> as we moved forward. Um, it began with, you know, just sort of our kind of love of what we do and talking together about uh, its value um, for this kind of teaching. Erin? Yeah, I I mean, I think we had such rich conversations um, from the, uh, you know, scholarship of vocation that mm-hmm. we were reading together in that seminar, much of which comes from the Scholarly Resources Project and the the volumes that Nephew has put forward and the scholars that have contributed. Um, but, you know, I think, yeah, the maybe it's sort of like, um, a, you know, a healthy agitation and scholarship, right, in, in the academy where we, we sort of say, well, where are the, where are the literary voices here mm. <laughs> writing mm-hmm. a significant, serious scholarship about vocation and um, we, you know, we could, we we started to look, and there was a lot of room to to um, develop that project. I think there is no um, absence of people referring to and using literature, and um, you know, wanting to go there and t- and talk about what literature and literature literary studies can offer um, us as uh, scholars and teachers. But um, the, how should we say this, the, the actual scholarship that was available um, seemed to be, you know, sort of crying out for, for this particular book. Narrative especially, stories especially, have been important to the conversations about teaching vocation. But without those literary scholars guiding that conversation or even contributing really in significant ways— there's been a, a void, and we wanted to to fill that and to um, to really display the contributions that we can make from our um, uh, expertise, from our training, um, and really from our resources. So that's that's what I mean. As 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 Aaron mentioned, as we begin looking at the breadth of scholarship more closely and realizing the literary voices were not present, um, we really sought to change that. And then the project became more urgent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, who's the intended audience for this book? I mean, so this is a collection of essays by people trained in literary studies. There's some, you know, references here and there to theory. Um, I'll say as a reader who doesn't have that training, it's still, it's it's intellectually challenging and inviting. It's not off-putting. But who, who were you imagining as the intended audience uh, for the book and what do you hope readers will take away from this collection? Erin, you want to get us started on that? Yeah, I think I think that we had, um, you know, two hopes. Uh, one was that we would uh, reach 
people who are have interest in the scholarship of vocation and that this would extend conversations and ignite new ways of thinking about vocation and give further resources um, in that way. I think also we saw this as a bridge to everyone in our discipline of literary studies who may not be aware of um, what it means to teach vocationally, to think about our vocations as English um, professors and, you know, what our discipline can um, sort of offer and also what vocation scholarship can offer in conversation. So it was a challenge to do this particularly focused book because we're trying to reach two different kinds of audiences, maybe all within the academy, but with maybe different purposes and coming to it with different kinds of knowledge. Mm -hmm. I think precisely because there's been such an interest in what we do um, by scholars and other disciplines, you know, prior to this volume, um, that, that, the audience really is interdisciplinary, um, although perhaps its primary audience is within our, our discipline. I think anyone interested in talking about narrative or, or poems or thinking um, about those kinds of texts for their teaching or for their own work, this volume is really for them um, as much as it is for someone who's working with literary texts every day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what do you... I mean, like any collection of essays, there's, of course, a lot of complex arguments here, and each each essay has sort of its own angle that it's taking. But for someone who sits and sort of works their way through the collection, you know, what are what are what do you hope that a reader takes away from the book? Well, I think I mean, one. One way to think about it is the way that we've organized it. It's in three sections. So the first part um, is form. So we look at genres, poetry, narrative, um, drama, the sort of form of, of English, you know, the English major or literary studies in general. And then we we have a section on voices. So there can be different, you know, theories or lenses and ways of reading and highlighting particular kinds of identities and experiences within vocation and literary studies. And then the close is praxis, which is, you know, where do where do we go in the world? And we go a lot of places. We go to the archives. We go into community organizations. We um, learn, you know, try to work with students on how to deal with real-world problems. And we address that kind of later in the book. And I think what we're hoping is that people would take – more, um, you know, have a, a better sense of specialized knowledge, certainly, maybe a, a better way to, to read literary studies and understand, but then also to be able to sort of appreciate the nuance that our our field offers this conversation of uh, vocation scholarship. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a way, I hope that, you know, people, people especially outside of English studies, kind of see what we're doing, you know, to recognize. (laughs) I see what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) We, I mean, we probably, you know, I think we do do more than maybe is recognized. Um, And we do things differently than maybe they're recognized. And so instead of having that, you know, novel be a case study for a different discipline, you know, I I want um, 
readers to see what we do, to understand what we do, and to recognize that um, um, that we have a whole breadth and depth of knowledge and expertise and sort of history in our discipline that that um, through which we teach students really how to read, right? How to read carefully and closely, and that is different from um, my colleagues in different departments, and that has value. Um, so I, I kind of want readers to take away that um, that there are there's a specific way I guess to bring a literary attention to a text, and um, and we work hard <laughs> to model that and to teach that, and that has something to say to students as they're thinking about their vocations and their lives. One of the things that excites me about that is, you know, within NetView. Some of different uh, colleges and universities have, in some cases, built vocation into the curriculum, um, and in other places, it's part of the co-curriculum, right? And there's lots and lots of different examples. But this book, and, and how you were just speaking to it, Stephanie, really sort of puts on display how some of what we do, maybe specifically in the humanities around close reading of texts and how that has some social and political implications and, and does have some implications then on the reader is, is tied up with some of the important things in vocation. So I think even separate from literary studies specifically as a discipline, it's just this really nice kind of underscoring of how vocation uh, isn't just this add-on, right? It's actually part and parcel of what a liberal arts education is about. Um, so uh, it's very satisfying to read also in that way. I mean, just introducing some of the, in both of your essays, you lead us through close reading of texts. And so that's just fun as a kind of a reader student. <laughs> um, but then it does spark all sorts of new ways of thinking about vocation, right? As somebody who then works with students on vocation. So Aaron, were you going to say something or? Well, I was just going to say, too, I mean, part of the sort of treasure of our discipline um, is that we celebrate the imagination. Mm. And we celebrate beauty. Mm-hmm. And we, we celebrate these aspects of human experience. And through textual analysis, we, you know, discover them further. And those are really important um pieces of vocational discernment to be able to imagine other selves, to imagine other worlds, other possibilities, um, and to be really attentive to that um, imaginative work, I think, is, uh, is you know, a piece, piece of this as well. Before we move on to your individual essays, I was curious to hear about this, just your own experience on this as a collaboration, which is, you know, a word that we, for good reasons, put a positive, I think, connotation on. But when I think about my own experiences with collaboration, it's hard, right? I mean, because uh, you suddenly have to work with someone else's sort of style, and it also can be clarifying about your assumptions, right? It can bring to light something that you hadn't necessarily been forced to reflect on. Anyway, I was just curious to hear how this went as a collaborative project, and did you, for each of you, was there something you learned about yourself through this collaboration? 
Well, this was not a hard collaboration. This was a joy. <laughs> and um, that's not to say the work wasn't hard. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but that's not because of the collaboration. Um, you know, Aaron is, a, it's been a pleasure to work with Aaron. And I can't imagine having done this with anyone else. We work really well together. Um and I don't know that I, I, I guess be, I'll, that's framing my answer then. I don't know that I learned anything new about myself. I think I'm, I'm hyper aware of my foibles um, <laughs> as a writer and as an editor. Uh, but I think um, I learned, I learned some things from Aaron. I'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, about patience as an editor, about um hard work um and about communication i guess within our within our group of of contributors Mm. you know so i learned a number of things or just different ways of thinking about process which i really appreciate Mm -hmm. this book we say this in the acknowledgments it you know it we wrote it during the during the pandemic um amongst multiple crises and it you know it the idea was um, well out of the gates before that, but we, um, you know, met with our our publishers in January of 2020. <laughs> what would be our, our publishers? And it's just really um, uh, amazing to consider the collaborative work that everybody did during these sort of, you know, extraordinary times on it. Um, I think I, I learned a lot about everyone's resilience um, mm. as a result of that. Uh, certainly, choosing the right conversation partner, and for me, that was Stephanie in this in this uh, process, is, is significant. And I do think that that's not to be underestimated as something to have learned, because I, I think, I mean, edited collections are um, a lot of a lot of details and a lot of um, you know different personalities and styles. And I think um, our consistent, you know, methods of conversation, it was just so rewarding. And um, to have a have a scholarly um, conversation ongoing for two years was so rewarding too. Um, we co-wrote two of the essays in the book, and that was an amazing experience. I'd never had that before, but to to write and then come together and say, is this how we want to say this and why? Mm-hmm. Um, that was an amazingly uh, reflective and life-giving experience. Not easy, <laughs> um, but also really, uh, really significant to my my own thinking and just I'm, I'm grateful for it. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get into some of the, uh, the meat of your essays, uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed reading. <laughs> so um, we'll start with you, Aaron. Uh, in your essay, you invite readers to consider what novels can teach us about vocation. And you look specifically to George Eliot's Middlemarch um, because it so effectively conveys characters' blindnesses, their kind of misguided flailings. I think a couple of times you used the word blunder. And uh, it's like, yeah, we need to talk more about blunders in vocation, you know? So, or I would like us as somebody who has blundered many times (laughs) us to talk a little more more about blunders. So just 
share with us kind of maybe sort of what your argument is in the essay and then just um, why Middle March and give us give us a feel for your for your essay in the collection. Yeah. Um, well, yes, we do need more blunders. And I think George Eliot actually <laughs> one who, who, uh, who quotes that and, and she but she says. Uh, you know, a lot about the sort of realities of life and the sort of coming up short, but that that doesn't mean that you haven't sort of, uh, you know, made your way in the world with purpose (laughs) or with meaning. Um, And so that's why I, I turned to that text. But I the argument of the essay is that when we read novels, um, these extended narratives, is that we're we're reading them um, through sort of a single narrative, um, you know, sort of close to the ground through one person's perspective, and then also, right, as the reader, we get to see everybody's narrative side by side. And when we analyze novels, any novel, we're kind of doing this sort of single and multiple at the same time. And it's bringing those pieces together that allows us to have a really rich vocational exploration as um, a reading experience. And that's something that happens in literary classrooms in particular. And that's different than asking people to tell a story. This is an analysis of multiple stories going on simultaneously. It's also about the the story of the reader, the story of the narrator. Um, there, there's, there's a lot of layers that I think, um, you know, it, it is worth bearing witness to because vocationally they can allow us to ask interesting questions and then turn that analysis on our own, our own experiences. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in terms of Middlemarch, I, I joke with my students when I teach it because um, it, it's it's a novel of adulting, uh, and there's there's a lot of ways to to teach that. When I teach it, I teach it in a 15 week semester. I teach it in the installments that it was originally published in, and um, I have students responding to it um, throughout the semester. So. We sit with it a little longer, and I, again, think that because we do this sort of careful and intentional um, reading, prolonged reading, I would even say. Mm. I mean, it's not nearly as long as the Victorians took to read it, <laughs> but they, because that would have happened over a, a year, right? But at least we've spent longer, and we're sitting with it longer, which I think is a reflective practice that vocational discernment you know, builds on, and it's something that we sort of cultivate in the literature classroom. So that's it allows us to kind of sit with the with the multiple stories to also acknowledge where we are in the story um, of reading the novel, and then you know, sort of see how we're changing, how the characters are changing, how we can see changes that they may not be able to see. Stephanie, your essay um, invites us to look at poetry, and I think at one place you say we just really have not sufficiently kind of uh, looked at poetry in vocation circles. And when we do, we kind of sort of do a bad job because we have this very bad habit, and not just those of us in vocation, of you know grabbing a couple of lines that strike us 
uh, and taking them completely out of the context of the larger poem, making them into some aphoristic teaching. Uh, so you invite us to think about carefully about how poetry has been used, not used, maybe abused for vocational reflection. Mm -hmm. And you specifically, I mean, there's several poems that you do a close reading on, but I think for those who work in vocation, it's very satisfying to read your, your close analysis of Mary Oliver's poem, <laughs> The Summer's Day, because, of course, the last two lines of that poem get trotted out all over the place. Tell me what it is you plan to do with your own wild and precious life. Um, so, uh, uh, similarly, kind of uh, share with us what the kind of larger argument is here, and then maybe an example that you use about poetry and vocation. Sure. This chapter really began with that, um, those lines from Mary Oliver uh, that are actually hanging um, on the wall <laughs> at my college um, in the entryway to the Vice President of Academic Affairs Office. And so it's, it's prominent, right? These lines are prominent in many ways. And so I guess the chapter began at my, with my dissatisfaction of how those lines have been used and, as you say, trotted out. Um, I don't think I say badly in my chapter, but no, um, that was my word. <laughs> it's an appropriate word, I guess. Um, it is really what I'm. I was thinking about as I was writing this that, in some ways, by our removing lines like that from a poem and using them in a utilitarian kind of way as we teach students and talk to students about vocation, we're doing an injustice to the poem, to the poet as well. And I wanted to begin there. So the chapter really begins with that idea that um, poetry demands our attention and it demands a literary attention. And that means considering the poem as a whole, as it is presented by the poet, um, and not to pull out, you know, those, those aphoristic lines and, and treat them as though they have no context. So the way I then developed the chapter, um, the argument of the chapter is to really stress that the language of poetry has value for the teaching of vocation and the sort of poem in its entirety matters. So if we attend to, in, in particular, the multiple meanings of poetic language, how a particular word in a poem can mean multiple things, it can have three meanings, for example, that are all useful to talk about, that are all helpful to talk about and and fun to talk about. And the way that then that shapes multiple meanings in a text, um, that's valuable for students. So that instead of being taught, I think what really happens in high school a lot for students is that they're taught that a poem has one meaning and that they need to get to that meaning. And when they do, they have the answer, so to speak. <laughs> And so to really resist that, I think a lot of our job um, as teachers of poetry is to is to resist that in the classroom and to say, um, no, let's let's consider the multiple meanings that are shaped by this language and to talk about that very slowly and attentively to close read it together. But to think about the language um, that's valuable for students because it puts them, number one, in uncertainty, mm. um, at least initially. But then I think number two, it it um, allows them to see the possibility um, that that multiple meanings brings multiple possibilities and for their lives as well. Right. So if we're if we're talking about a poem as having multiple meanings and we have to engage with 
multiple things happening at the same time. It's similar to what Aaron was saying earlier about um, multiple stories, mm-hmm. um, multiple narratives. Um, that that when students are are asked to kind of live in that space, um, it allows them, I hope, to see that their lived experience is that as well. Um, mm-hmm. that, that our lived experience doesn't have just one answer or one right path or one end goal, but that we live in possibility and we live in, um, and we create sort of meaning in our lives in different ways all of the time. So I guess in a way, my chapter is about modeling how to read poetry and how I would hope um, that we read poetry so that um, instead of just focusing on like a particular poem that helps us think about vocation because of its content, um, I'm, I'm hoping that we think about um, sort of ways of reading, um, how we read a poem, and that skill of literary attention and literary reading is really actually then transferable, mm, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which sounds counterintuitive to a lot of people, you know, that skills in the humanities are transferable. But I think um, that's really what I was, what was important to me about this, about this chapter. Um, so it's, it's helping them navigate ambiguity. It's helping them navigate paradox. It's helping them see the potential in language. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's, I was kind of surprised that, where you go in that essay uh, is toward something you call relational selfhood, that um, the way that lyric poetry, after you do these close readings, it um, it sort of reminds us or it kind of calls readers into thinking about relationality. And, and in some cases, because of the poems that you choose, it is indicts, you look at a poem by Lucille Clifton, another one from Reginald Dwayne Betts, they actually in, sort of have the effect of indicting the reader for their complicity in, in racist, homo, homophobic systems. But that, that that's an example of, it's not just the self of the reader, or even the sort of the self of the speaker in the poem. There's something relational there. So you write, thinking poetically can help students reframe ambiguity and polysemy as positive aspects of meaning-making but it can also expand their horizon of responsibility as they conceive of self and other anew. And actually, I picked up on that in the intro, and I know this comes up in the other essays. There's an element, there's a social element to this book about Mm -hmm. the community. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Does one of you want to speak to that? I was sort of beginning... Let's start with Stephanie, since that was about kind of that point sure. at the end of your essay. But th- there is a larger sure. theme here. Sure. I mean, it, again, it seems counterintuitive to talk about, especially a lyric poem that has an eye um, and an interlocutor. It's, it seems counterintuitive to talk about that as a poem about community, right? Because mm-hmm. it seems very much about the singular eye. But all lyric poems have an, an interlocutor, have an implied audience. Um, and so that the eye is already in in conversation, um, and oftentimes the eye is in conversation with itself, as though the self were other. Mm. Um, thinking about the past self, thinking about the future self. Um, so the eye um, is communal. <laughs> it is. It, it can. We can think of it as not just the lyric eye, but but um, but a lyric we perhaps. And the poem 
demands that of us as readers. It puts us in the position of that speaker and so that we're thinking about um, uh, ourself in an objective kind of way as we take the position of the I. But of course, then we're thinking about the speaker as other, right, as, as part of this poem that is not I. Um, and that kind of that kind of um, then understanding of the self as always in relationship, as always in conversation, is I think really helpful for, for vocation studies. Um, it it pulls us out of that kind of solipsism that we might fall into as we think about our lives in the singular, um, or try to, um, and it reminds us that we are always in relationship. Mm. And I think that's one of the really wonderful things about these particular poems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to just kind of extend um, the idea of how the discipline speaks to community and how that relates to vocation, I think um, one thing that we talk about um, through the lens of literary theory is that um, it allows us to critique um, ways that we've thought about self, the ways that we've thought about community, the ways that we've thought about authors and who get, who gets to tell stories, whose stories we read and listen to, um, so that there is a, a great value in the study of the ways in which, um, you know, like communities expand and that we allow uh, narratives to to be different um, and to highlight different voices. So that, I mean, we I would argue that our, our discipline um, offers that as a vocational exploration tool because we're always asking who is represented, <laughs> who is not represented, how is that formed, how can we transform that, where are the absences? Where can we develop that further? Those are vocational questions mm. that we're asking of a te- really, but we're asking them of a literary text, you know, in sort of an interrogation sort of a way, but then also allowing that to kind of expand and asking ourselves, what does that mean for us as members of, you know, civic society, of, of members of families, of, of members of, you know, our various communities, um, you know, along the way. This book, I think of it as a kind of a model, and maybe, hopefully, it'll prompt some followers in this way, that you've put forward how uh, literary studies, you know, as a particular discipline, has something to contribute to the scholarship and pedagogy of vocation, and that's that's come out in your answers. Um and I think, you know, it's fair to say that sort of the theologians and perhaps the philosophers have <laughs> been holding court on this for a long time. And so it's a welcome, you know, new new set of practices and ways of thinking about things. But I also hear in this, um, there's, there's places in the introduction where you seem to suggest that literary studies is uniquely suited to do so. I mean, in part, this is anytime we're talking about life stories and narrative, which we do a lot in vocation. Okay, now we're in your realm, right? We're in literary studies and we should stop and pay attention and, you know, consult the experts. So at one level, it feels like this book is sort of saying that. Okay, and so because my first training was in philosophy, I have to admit that 
uh, agitated me in, you know, an enjoyable way of just the old, old debate, right, <laughs> between sort of rhetoric and philosophers and who's getting at the truth and which one reigns supreme. And I'll, I'll say that I think philosophy, maybe theology too, continues to imagine itself as the queen of the sciences. And so this, this, this felt like a, uh, like a challenge to that, that role. So am I misreading the book or does either one of you want to speak to that? No, you're not misreading. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> bring it on, bring it on. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I don't see it as a, as a competition. I really don't. And so it, it was, you know, there was that kind of distress, I guess, that we haven't been part of or been asked to be part of the conversation. Mm. It, um, you know, for the last few decades uh, in vocation scholarship. But I, I see it as as really, uh, it is a defense of our discipline, that's true, but it's also a look at what we can offer you. <laughs> look what we can bring. And mm-hmm. that's really valuable. Look what you're missing, you know. So I don't see it as a, as a competition, but more so as a um, let's expand the conversation and recognize that um, that when we talk about close reading or we talk about literary attention, it might be something slightly different than how you talk about it. <laughs> and there's there's value in in kinds of the questions that we ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, too. There's there's a sense that um, I mean, there were a lot of us um, in the NetView teaching seminar that came out of literary studies. And there continue to be a lot of Mm -hmm. folks in English departments, in composition positions or rhetoric positions that are, are doing this work that are interested in the work. And um, so it's a, I think also a sort of a recognition of sort of, you know, the, the wide range of um, people who are, who are interested in doing, you know, in this sort of teaching, but also, it's a question about maybe shifting which stories. So for a long time, you know, with, with good reason, the ideas of biblical stories um, are, are sort of used as models of vocational discernment um, questions. And um, I think it's also sort of a recognition of, well, which, which texts are being used when we're, when we're talking about um about vocation, is it only the you know religious texts, or are there other texts that are being brought forward, and and how would that matter um, to to the scholarship? Uh, there's an essay in our book about translating vocation, and um, by Jeremy Payton, and I mean he talks about literature and translation, but we also talk about vocation as vocation needs to be translated mm. in some ways, in different ways, and so I think maybe dislocating the language of vocation to another discipline is helpful for everybody mm-hmm. um, and locating it in a, in a, with different conversation partners. I think too, yeah, we, we do hope that other disciplines might look at their own strengths um, and sort of say, hey, what, what can, y- what does your, you know, sphere of influence kind of offer us and how can we learn together um, in that way. Okay, so now I want I always uh, enjoy hearing people talk about particular texts that they love. So the first question is for each of you, 
Is there a particular text that played a role in your own vocational journey? Maybe the text that made you want to be an English professor. That already came out a little bit. but And then the second question is, what are your favorite texts to use with students in order to engage them in thinking about their own callings? Let's do the first question with each of you and then the second question. So is there a particular text that played a role in your own vocational journey? Erin, do you want to go first? Oh, well, I mean, I, I did talk about... Um, their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. But I think I'll, I'll also go to graduate school. And um, in in graduate school, I took a seminar on um, Victorian, the Victorian novel. And while I, you know, certainly would call out Jane Eyre or Middlemarch, I, there were many um, short stories that I read and um, by what uh, a group of writers called the New Women Writing and um i i just i just fell in love with that and their analysis of art and aesthetics and uh that that ended up being the gateway to my dissertation and a lot of my research so that might be the you know some of the texts i would point out mm. Stephanie? I had mentioned Huck Finn earlier, but that is not at all the text <laughs> that led me to this. What it did was it led me to critical, critical conversation and, and scholarship. Um, but if I think about a literary text that has been really important, was really important for me and still is, um, I, it has to be Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse, mm. um, which I disliked as an undergraduate in my modernism class. But somehow, and I can't remember how, I came to desire to take a wolf seminar in my master's program. I do not remember what happened to make me change, but I I sat in on an undergraduate course because that was the level it was offered as. Um, it was taught by Tony McNairn, who was a wonderful wolf scholar at the University of Minnesota. And um, somehow that novel for me, not, not in its... Um, well, I should say this, as much in its what it's about, its content, as in the telling of it, has been vital to me in my career. Um, it's a beautiful novel, of course, about the artist, the woman artist, and the struggle against sort of expectations and the weight of previous generations and gender ideology. Um, it's, it's, it's about an artist who's exhausted at the end, but who can create meaningfully and beautifully mm. and that's been vital to me but also just in the telling of it um it's a modernist novel that underscores um the fragmentary nature of our existence of our perception of our existence and uh that that reshapes for me how i kind of perceive my life and our experience here so mm. it's been really transformative um, it's um, it's still, I think, one of my favorite novels. <laughs> now, how about texts that you enjoy using with students, specifically when you're trying to engage them about vocation? I I would mention that I've had the chance to teach, but I also greatly treasure um, a memoir by uh, the late. Irish poet Yvonne Boland, and the memoir is entitled Object Lessons. And it's about the life of the, a woman and a poet. She's, you know, and she, it's a, 
what I would call like a hybrid way of writing where she is engaged in literary criticism, historical criticism, self-reflection about what it meant to be um, a, an Irish poet in a tradition of, um, you know, largely male poet poetry and the, you know, what was talked about and what was revered as appropriate topics for, for poetry. And um, I've taught that and t- and presented on that um, as a way of thinking about our own life and our own work. And I really enjoy um, enjoy her writing because she brings together all parts of her existence, her role as a mother and as a spouse and as a poet and as a literary critic all together. And I think it's a really interesting model to offer students. Um, and I'll, the other book I would talk about would be Annie Lamott's uh, Traveling Mercies, mm. which I which I teach in a spiritual memoir class. And I think Lamott's um, imagining of um, herself in community and in relationship um, to um, God, but also her relationship to other people is um, really just so evocative and funny and also... A, it's just an available nar- narrative for students mm-hmm. to think about vocation. Mm-hmm. I would answer in a couple of different ways. The, the, the text, I guess that most directly addresses your question is the poem, ask me by William Stafford. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it It's posing many questions that are hard questions. It's a hard poem for students, but it's that question question about sort of what is life is life doing or is life being um that <laughs> i think is valuable for a conversation with students even if they struggle with it um and struggle with interpreting the poem you know is is it in the stasis or is it in the flux and um and is it a binary it's really not so we have a lot of good conversations about life's meaning in relation to those questions of being um, in relation to doing, I guess, with that poem. Mm. Um, And my other answer is, I guess, I love to teach Wolf, and and I love to teach A Room of One's Own. And I guess I'll name that text as something that's been really important to me, in part because um, I have a number of female students who are as quiet as I was as an undergraduate. Mm. And I see part of my calling as prompting them to find a voice, to find a confidence to speak. And I'm attempting to work on that with them every day. Um, my college is, has a majority female students, and and this is a upper Midwestern kind of problem <laughs> that we've mm-hmm. identified. And so A Room of One's Own is a way for me to reach many of my students with ideas about um, gender and um, finding a voice and kind of the historical struggle for women to write and to find that voice. And then I'm able to ask them to place themselves in that um, kind of history and ask them where they're at and, and really let Wolf prompt questions to them about their lives. And that book matters to my students. Mm. Um, as it matters to me. And that's been really valuable. So it's not, it doesn't seem immediately a vocation book. It's not one that many would maybe think of in the canon of vocation text to teach. But I guess my approach is that almost every text I teach 
has something to say about vocation. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's one in particular that I like to really, um, to really use. And, and I love it. I wasn't going to ask you this, but just listening to you to uh, give your examples of texts that were really important to you and then texts that you have used and have found effective with students. Have you ever had the experience of teaching, sharing with students a text that was, for whatever reason, very transformative for you? And then it just falls flat for whatever reason. The students just don't seem to get it or have the same, have the same reaction to it. That's a great question, Hannah. I, I think this happens to us all the time. This is a really common. <laughs> oh, good. That experience. makes me feel better. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. But I, I think, you know, in those, in, in those class periods where I feel especially that something has fallen flat. Um, and it's most painful when it's a text I love. Like when I teach Mrs. Dalloway, for example, which I adore and, you know, I'm the age of Mrs. Dalloway. And so to have my young students not really understand why it's what it's saying and why, you know, is really painful. But I think there, there are a couple of things. Um, the, the first response I would have is that I know that sometimes I'm reaching students with something that I'm teaching and I don't realize that I'm reaching them. Mm. It might come back to me in a course evaluation. It might come back to me in a comment or it may not come back to me ever. But I recognize that I am reaching someone even when I don't realize it. Mm. And and then secondly, that's okay. And it's actually a reminder to me that what I'm doing and my vocational commitment isn't reliant on response and feedback from others for its value. Mm. In other words, I have to determine that this is valuable. I have to believe that it is. I have to be enthusiastic up there every day and I have to trust that what I am doing will reach my audience. Um, maybe not all of them, but some of them. And that makes it worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, listening to Stephanie talk about that reminds me of part of when we were writing the epilogue to the book. We were kind of asking, what's what's the vocation of the professoriate? And in some ways, the answer is we show up with the challenge of the text every day. <laughs> and um, I, I mean, I, we, we talk about Helen Vendler's idea of, you know, teaching students to love what you love. They may not love it, <laughs> but we're going to, we're going to love it and, and sort of demonstrate that love in, in the classroom. I, I think there's also a chance each day to kind of go to the class and, you know, Start over, start again, um, and that—that's part of the call of what we're we're doing. Um, I think, you know, whenever I teach uh, Robert Browning's dramatic monologues or Augusta Webster's dramatic monologues, I love dramatic monologues because of their sort of uh, structure and their um, dynamic voice because it's a single person talking and it's so exciting. And I mean, like the number of times that they're shrugging shoulders, but I just think, no, it's this, it's this sort of bringing it forward that that's what I'm doing Mm. every day and bringing forward the difficult difficulties of either the, the content or the form or whatever it is, or the topic. That's what we're doing. Mm. That's the call. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay, so as Aaron knows, we always end these conversations asking our wise guests, 
what advice uh, you would give to a young adult today, just given the state of our world. Um, and so this now we're turning the tables. <laughs> Aaron, what advice would you give to a young adult today? Well, I'm going to go back to my um, my comfort zone, which is uh, narrative and novels, and and to Middlemarch, and I'm going to you know suggest that there are things to pay attention to, and one is is the narrative, um, the sort of strong narrative of yourself that you know you you want to listen to the narrative, sort of pay attention to to the storyline that you're you know sort of on. At the same time, maybe even more importantly, you need to listen to the counter narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you you may consider your the story of your life as you know it at the present time or what you've been told should be your story. Um, but also think think about um, the counter narratives and how who who is asking questions that maybe challenge. What you think um, your 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 you know your trajectory is? Who? What are the things that maybe could be different or could you know expand your story? I think that that's that's significant. I also think um, you know in Middlemarch it, it ends very famously with this idea of the uh, Elliot writes the growing good of the world is in part dependent on honest unhistoric acts. And I think students often think of, um, you know, the stories that we give them of vocation are these, you know, amazing historical figures or influential people. But there's this idea of um, the unhistoric as being significant to the growing good. And I, um, it's not that we are unhistoric. Um, we're, we're, we're significant um, in our place and time. And uh, to really kind of take that as, as an invitation um, to to understand, you know, your own ability to contribute and um, and to blunder uh, to bl- to blunder your way through it. That's mm-hmm. that's okay too. Mine will be a little a briefer than Erin. She said that so well. Advice that I would give to young adults it really has to do with the idea of possibility and to recognize that not that everything is possible but that we live in the possible. And I'll I'll refer to Emily Dickinson for this one. It's the first poem that I discuss in my chapter, her poem entitled, I Dwell in Possibility. That's the first line. And so I think my advice is to dwell in possibility, to recognize how that's life-giving and positive and beautiful, even if it's sometimes scary. And to dwell on the possible um, as much as we can, I think, will give us meaningful lives. Thank you. Erin, Stephanie, thank you so much for this book and for your time today. Uh, listeners, I really encourage you to check out this book. If you're at all interested in vocation, you will enjoy the intellectual challenge and the fun of close reading of texts. And it, it will it will make you think about vocation in a different way. It's really good. Thanks, Hannah. Thank you, Hannah. That was wonderful. Well, I hope that conversation with Aaron and Stephanie piqued your interest in their book. It's uh, well worth your time and attention if you're someone 
who likes to think about vocation and who works on vocation uh, with undergraduates. In the introduction to their book, they take up the question of what distinguishes uh, literary studies from uh, other disciplines in the humanities. And as someone trained in philosophy and religion, I'm interested in that question. They cite a, a scholar, Peter Berry, who says it has to do with the intensity of reading. And that's uh, very much behind some of what we heard uh, Aaron and Stephanie uh, say in this conversation. So at the end of the introduction uh, in their book, they write, Literary studies cultivates the ability to listen carefully and to negotiate ambiguity. In its commitment to concentrated interpretation, literary studies can provide undergraduates with the skills and focus necessary to examine their own lives with intensity, to interpret the convergence of the text and context of lived experience skillfully, to consider its multiple meanings for past, present, and future and to evaluate its worth for the self and for the common good. And you can hear that there are many uh, levels woven together in this book, and that came out a bit in our conversation. So what, do, what can we learn from uh, two English majors who became English professors about vocation? You know, first is this idea about the power of an encounter with the text. Certainly that's been true in their lives, and you can hear how they make that possible in their own classrooms. You know, a careful encounter of a text, sort of opening yourself up to it, can expand your horizons. There's this imaginative capacity, uh, what Aaron talks about, with expanding your encounter with other selves, other worlds and other possibilities. And so you can sort of hear how uh, that would help in expanding one's sense of discerning vocation. And then just the practice of reading a text carefully and all the complexity involved uh, in the interpretation of a text, and then how that might pertain to reading your own life um, as a very complicated and rich uh, text, you know, that doesn't necessarily point in a singular direction. Uh, as I read it, this project was born out of an agitation that the idea of narrative gets trotted out frequently uh, by scholars who are writing about vocation, um, but by scholars who don't have the training about what that means, about what's involved in narrative and story. And so, as Stephanie said, this book is trying to sort of fill that void. Another thing that interests me about Stephanie and Aaron's project and the, the the many writers who contributed to it is the way in which it's possibly a kind of new chapter in the scholarship on vocation, and this is all to the good. You know, in this case, it is the discipline of literary studies offering some new perspectives on vocation, but perhaps it's a model and an invitation to people in other disciplines, not just in the humanities, but perhaps in the social sciences and the science as well. So what can the discipline of history teach us about how we understand vocation? What can physics teach us about how we understand vocation? I remember an incredible conversation with a mathematician at Monmouth College about chaos theory and how that relates to understanding uh, one's life and the meaning in one's life. If you take nothing else away from this conversation, hopefully you heard in both of their personal stories the significance of 
that first teacher who said to Aaron, who said to Stephanie, you have a special ability here. This is something you should consider uh, pursuing, you know, the study of literature, uh, going to graduate school, becoming a teacher, and the significance of stopping and listening. Stephanie calls those um, moments of listening. And so it's a really fine reminder of how important listening to the voices of wise people in our lives, uh, what that plays in a discerning vocation. Thank you for listening. Callings is hosted by NetView, the network for vocation in undergraduate education, an association of over 250 colleges and universities in the U.S. and Canada. NetView is administered by the Council of Independent Colleges and is funded through member dues and generous support from Lilly Endowment, Inc. Your hosts were Hannah Schell and Aaron Van Lanningham, and the episode was mixed by Caleb Kennedy. You can find our library of podcasts at netview.buzzsprout.com. Additional resources can be found at NetView's blog, vocationmatters.org, and at the NetView program page at the Council of Independent Colleges website, www.cic.edu. Our music was composed by Dan Kennedy. Thank you for listening. Listeners to this episode will enjoy Aaron and I's conversation with Dorothy Bass and Mark Schwain, the editors of Leading Lives That Matter, about the new second edition published last year. You might also enjoy the episode featuring Marjorie Haas, president of the Council of Independent Colleges and author of A Leadership Guide for Women in Higher Education. That episode is titled Wrestling with the Angel.